excited. I'm excited that you're here. My name is Danny, and uh, I just want to start off by welcoming everybody who's new. Thanks so much for uh, giving, giving church a shot. We're thankful that you're here. We're, uh, we're grateful that you want to be uh, curious with us about what it means to, uh, to live a life that uh, asks big questions, even if they're messy, and that's a bit of what we're going to do today. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I'm having a really good day. I'm going to bring a lot of energy today. Uh, and it's also going to be a little awkward a little later in the service. So just plan for it. Just plan for it. A uh, couple reasons why. First off, uh, it's raining. And those who don't know, uh, you don't know that rain is the best, right? Rain is like it's homey. Like we're all in here together. We're like we're having our hot drinks. We're hanging out. Uh, I know some of you like sun. You're going to get some sun. But it's rainy, so I preach best in the rain. And then also, before I left the house today, I looked in the mirror and I realized I was dressed like a music producer. So I don't know, I don't know whose deal I'm trying to sign today, but trust me, I can make your life better. So I'm excited about that. Um, we are in a series right now. Uh, we're in a series right now about shame. Uh, and we're not, we're not just in the series because it's like the appropriate thing to talk about during this time of the year or because it's a hot topic or even because everybody needs to face it. We're in the series because... Following Easter, we were talking about what these people that God sent out into the world with his message would face. And they would face persecution, and they would face trials, and they would face all kinds of struggle. But we started realizing that uh, probably the biggest thing that they would face moving out into the world after Jesus sent them would be their own stories, primarily their shame. And at Kesed right now, we have a lot of new people and new families. We have a lot of Christians uh, who have not been going to church for a long time, who just decided to, to give it another shot. We have a lot of people in our own church who started to kind of pick up their faith and, and own it in a different space. And we started hearing some of those same stories, like, I've done this before, and, and, and I, I was a part of a church once, and everything that, that they said they were ended up not being true. And, and there was just all this shame around either the church they were at before and what they helped it accomplish, even in a bad way, or their, their past stories or, or things that have happened to them. And we're going to talk about all that today. And we just realized that shame is, is such a, a prevalent thing that's keeping a lot of us, including myself, from living the life that uh, we think God has called us to live. So, so that's why we're doing this series. If you didn't get uh, the introduction last week, you can go back and watch it online or on the app. Uh, I'm just going to do a really quick review here, and then we'll jump into what I think is going to be pertinent for this room, which is a little different than the other rooms a little different than the other folks that were watching online. So first, here's our working definition of shame. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. We talked last week about how shame has a voice, and it can be all kinds of different voices from different uh, angles, but how the voice of shame always speaks lies, never truth. The voice of shame will always try to isolate us from one another and from God. How that shame derives its power from being unspeakable, which is why even talking about it is uncomfortable. And that the same way the voice of shame speaks things into death, the God who loves you speaks things into life. We told the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and how they chose to rebel against God's plan, which all of us have done in our lives. And how they ended up in a space where God asked them two questions that I think were, were offered to them and humanity to build uh, a life outside the garden, but still back towards God. And there were two things. One, where are you? Uh, shame causes us to hide. Adam and Eve were hiding when they, when they first rebelled against God. There was shame that overwhelmed them. And so a lot of us 
including myself, have areas in my life that I'm just hiding from God. I don't want him to see it. I don't want him to even know it exists. And I just, I just don't want to tell him this is where part of me lives. The second question is who told you? Is, is the voice that I'm hearing God's voice, who always speaks life, who always speaks love, who always speaks healing? Or is it my own voice that speaks lies often into myself? Or is it somebody else's voice that I've allowed too close? Or is it the spiritual enemy's voice? So where are you and who told you? Those are the two questions from last week that we were supposed to ponder together. If you did the work, then today I want you to imagine that you're sitting here right now uh, with kind of like an emotional compass. Uh, When it comes to where are you, this means that you can recognize where the beginning of your journey toward freedom is located, where you should start from. Luke 19.10 says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I've been a part of many people finding God. No one has ever found God without first recognizing and in a very honest way and vulnerably proclaiming that they're lost. That's where God is, by the way. He's in the lost places. That's where he exists. The more lost you are, the more God you can probably see. The more found you are, the more solid in your own, like, you know, perspective and your own, in, in, you know, thing. Actually, that's probably the most that I'm battling in the room right now are people who don't really need this talk because their shame is so well hidden and so buttoned up that they look like little mini gods themselves. And so they're as found as they can be. So in the name of Jesus, we're going to come after you today. Just be respectful. Just be respectful, but that, that's... That's what's going to happen, I can tell you right now, for this room. The next one is, who told you, means that you can distinguish between the voice of shame, who heckles you from the shadows, and the voice of God, who hails you to come forward. Jesus himself says it quite simply, quite delicately, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Notice it says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. It doesn't say, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and then they do all the work. He says, I know them. I know when they hear me in that lost place. And they follow me because that's where I show up. And so in this series and today, every time you become lost, fatigued, defeated, overcome with grief or weariness, I want you to rest and focus upon those two questions throughout the series. Where are you? Proclaiming God already knows and he's there. And who told you? Proclaiming he is the voice that you have to hear, that I have to hear to follow my way out of this shame cycle that I've lived in. Now, answering these questions are critical first steps if shame is to be left behind. But there's no other way to talk about shame than to bring some of it up and forward. And I want to bring some clarity. Uh, Last week, I talked about kind of envisioning that we're going to kind of dive down into this valley of work over the next six weeks or so. And we're going to get tools. And I'm going to be here for all the, the weeks. And those tools are going to help us deal and work and toil with our shame. But I said, what I want you to do is come up on the ridge above the valley, the valley where all the fruit is, and I want you to summit with your shame. Summit with a T. Summit with your shame. And I had a ton of people, most likely all the gamers in the church, who were like, yeah, I've been working really hard on summoning my shame this week. And I said, what? Yeah, summoning with an N, summoning. I said, this isn't World of Warcraft. We're not trying to get you through a portal somewhere. Don't summon your shame, people. That's not what I said. I said, summit your shame, not summon. So for those of you who've been summoning all week, stop it, right? That's not going to be, that's a different thing, and we got to be careful of that. So summit your shame, understand this, just like the disciples. As you take off on your journey, just imagine it, just like the disciples, and you open the door the first day after Jesus said, go out into the world, and he ascends, Peter, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, any of them, and they take their first steps, I can promise you what packed a bag and stepped out right out after them was their shame. Absolutely. That first night when they were excited about, I can't believe it. I wonder if the first town's going to work. I wonder if they're going to listen. I wonder if they are going to record producing, sign the deal. I wonder if they're going to be a part. The first thing I promised one of them thought was, I wonder if they know I'm the denier. I wonder if they know I'm the doubter. I wonder if they know, you know, the relationships I had before and the people that I hurt and the way I let others down. I wonder, I wonder if they know my secrets. And that's what sits at campfires emotionally with all of us. Some of us are better at addressing it. Some of us are better at facing it. Some of us are better at hiding it. But Jesus wants us to actually overcome it. And so that's what we're going to dive in today. Now, the logic should be that as you travel towards this valley to do this work, that any voice you hear that's not God's, you should just ignore, especially shame's voice. It should have no power. It should have no influence. And uh, you should just be able to, to, to overcome it and get over it in the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus and the church service of Jesus and the worship service of Jesus and everything should just be better in your life. But I'm just here to tell you that's just not true. Shame does not let go that easily. It clings and it holds and it scars and it manipulates. And because those words of shame have been cleverly placed in each of our lives, either by an enemy, our stories, or ourselves, those words often will refuse to be left behind as you begin that journey toward freedom. And so you will have seasons where you do pretty well and you're like, I think I've overcome this. And then you'll turn a corner and meet someone or see something or something will trigger you and suddenly you will tumble backwards as if you were that person again experiencing that decision or that trauma and you will cycle. And there's no other way I can offer to walk us through this series and this topic than being honest with you that there is a shame cycle in all of our lives and that will not go away. What will go away is our ability to walk through it, to handle it, to understand it, to receive it, to, to have tools to face it. But one of the problems that church does is it promises this big giant inoculation. I talked last week about the verse where the disciples get sent out and there's one passage that's questionable where it says, and they will go out and they will handle poisonous snakes and they will be superheroes and they will do all these amazing things. And then nobody gets to do that. And they look around and they're like, well, I guess God's not with me. It's probably because of my shame. And it's just not true. But shame is a huntress. And she will continue after you and I. And so you, you and I just have to get to a place where we understand some days we're going to battle fist to face. And some days we're going to leave her a mile behind and feel pretty good about that night's sleep. But it's going to be something that comes and goes. And I want to walk you through best how to face it and how not to let it overcome you. Now, when you go on a journey like the one we're going on, uh, I want you to imagine it as a map. When you print out a map or have one in front of you, you can always see the destination. The destination in this series, by the way, is freedom. It's overcoming. But you still must, all of us in this room, make the journey and the plan to get there and plan accordingly how you're going to reach that destination. And so today, we're going to talk about how Jesus proves that he's the way to that freedom and out of that cycle. I want to make sure we understand that that's the goal, and I want it to be very clear that he is the work that's been done for all of us, but we are all called to participate ourselves in the journey he's inviting us on. We don't just go, I bought a ticket at church today, 
and I'm now saved by the blood of Christ. Mm, same lifestyle as always. You, it, it's not how it works. You've got to pack a bag. You've got to tell your friends where you're going. You've got to make a plan. You've got to probably pause some things. And then you've got to get on the, go to the airport and walk through the stuff. It's same with your spiritual walk. You have a responsibility, as do I, to sit and be aware of the journey that God is taking you on. Not just fall asleep like you used to when you were three and wake up at home. This is not child's play. This is true discipleship and true transformational work. And it's hard and it's messy. And the biggest excuse why people don't do it is because there's nobody they've ever seen do it well. And that's why this place and this room is so important. Because the world would love your, your children, your parents, your coworkers. Would, they wouldn't even know what to do if they could see the light flicker back in your eyes in spite of your past, in spite of your story, in spite of your trauma. That would be the most amazing, magical, like serpent-holding, oil-boiling miracle ever is you to be filled with joy in spite of the junk in your life and mine. That's what the gospel does. That's what people go, I want that. Not because you just glow and are different, but because everybody's got junk. And when, when you're like, yeah, my storage unit is like cleared out. People are like, what? How? And you're like, come on over here. I'll lend you my spiritual wheelbarrow. And you tell them how it worked. And it's ugly and it's hard and it's messy. But that's the transformational work of gathering together as his church and being authentic about the stuff in our lives. Not to hide it, to reorganize it, to put it in bins with labels on it that say, this is my past, this was high school, this was my addictions, this was my first marriage. Everything's put away. Close it, lock it, and move on. Just pay that payment when it comes up. This is not how God has called us to live. He's called us to, to recognize those pieces as part of our journey and to proclaim them in Jesus' name uh, whole and healed. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about this Jesus and who he says he is, John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life, said Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the freedom. He's the goal. He's what's at the end of the map. He's where we're going. He's where we'll be at the end of the series. But I want to be very clear that everything shame says and does is focused on contradicting this truth. Everything. It says that Jesus isn't the way you have to make your own way. It says all the truth in your life is a lie. It says everything in your life is going to die and has died and most likely because of you. And it says you can never come to the Father because the Father is holy and you're just a piece of garbage. And it's all a lie. And yet for some of us, it's the first thing we think about when we look in the mirror in the morning before we move out into this world, that I am unlovable, that my decisions that were made for me or the decisions I made myself have somehow disqualified me from the human race and from being a child of the God who made me. I've said it before and I'll say it again. You are not science sitting in a chair. You are a spirit-filled vessel, handmade created by God from the color of your hair or lack of it. <laughs> Amen, said a bald guy in the back. Amen. <laughs> to, the, to, the, to the color of specks in your eyes, you are crafted. And that's why it's so important to understand you only belong in one set of hands, folks, and it is the hands of the one who made you. And they made me too, so... I'm on this journey with you. 
So uh, you're going to see, <laughs> I'm trying really hard not to let it be this way, but I know for a fact you're going to see real stuff pop up in my story because it's super hard for me to preach stuff that I'm not well-rounded in. And the, the only thing I can commit to you is I'm up to my waist in this topic. And so I'm just hoping you're today going to get up to your knees and every week we're going to get further and further until the only thing left is a rescue by Jesus. But I'm in it with you, so we're just going to dive in. Here's what I want to do. It's a little different, but I think it's important. I want to talk today about how Jesus, uh, proclaiming that he is the way, still recognizes through his ministry that there is a shame cycle to be overcome. I want to talk about this shame cycle, not from a perspective of how that is overcome, but from actually how it is not overcome in a biblical sense and how it outworks itself in our human lives and the way that God interacts with us when we continue to choose to listen to shame instead of him. The story will pick up right where we left off last week with Adam and Eve. As a consequence of Adam and Eve's choice to rebel, they are removed from the garden And that's where we're going to pick up. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him, Adam, out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned away every way to guard the way to the tree of life. At this point, God is basically allowing the consequences of Adam and Eve's choice to catch up with them. He's saying you will no longer exist in this perfect place, this place that is ruled by uh, me and the economy of love that I've built. Instead, you will exist in a world where you are the rulers. And therefore, due to your own choices, this will be on the screen, you will no longer rule creation like you once did. Instead, you will have to strive to rule your own shame and consequences. When you choose to be God, then you are responsible for the choices you make as a little God. And therefore, because you'll continue to choose yourself, most of us, you will deal with the consequences of that selfishness and any shame that comes from it. From within this place, Adam and Eve do the same thing we all do when we live in great dysfunction but have someone we love. They decide to start a family. Anybody else been there? You're like, this relationship doesn't seem healthy. This is my wife and I, we were dating. I'm pretty sure we're escaping all of our problems into each other's arms. You know what we should do? We should have some kids. (laughs) <laughs> I know, like half the room's like, this is, a, this is my story. I didn't, is this my, this is my story. But like with all those stories, you will see their relational compass with God isn't healed. They don't know where they are and they don't still know who's telling them why they exist. They are believing the lies. So they pass on this legacy of wandering cyclical dysfunction to their children. Chapter four, verse one. Now Adam knew his wife, And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So Abel was uh, a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain the farmer and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now this is kind of alluding to the reality that God had relationship with these people. That the way that that the world started, God was still very much connected even inside the fallenness of people to their stories. So most likely God and Cain had had all kinds of conversations up till this point, like we all do when we're raising our children, right? 
But there does come a point when you have adult kids, I have some, where they just kind of look at you and they're like, you know, Dad, I'm just going to make my own choice here, and I know you don't agree with it. And as a father, you got to go, well, I don't agree with it. I don't think that's healthy for you. And, and although we'll still be in relationship, I'm not going to approve or engage in that. That's a little bit what this is alluding to. It's not that just God was like, oh, I don't like avocados. That's not what was happening here. He wasn't like, your fruit is not good to me, sir. There was something going on in the heart of Cain, and you're going to see it that God was addressing. Cain wasn't ruling over his world and his conscience and his story like he was supposed to. So look at the relationship God offers to Cain. The Lord goes to him. Notice Cain didn't go to God. The Lord goes to Cain. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. This is that earlier comment. We are the rulers of this part of our life, or at least we're supposed to be. And the desire within this world of our flesh is contrary to what's best for us almost every time. God is making a character statement about Cain, but Cain doesn't reply. He says nothing. His heart has begun to get hard. Some of us in this room, this next statement will apply really well to you, so don't take it personal. It's, it's, it's exactly meant to be personal, but you don't need to take it that way if you don't want to. A lot of our dysfunction and brokenness comes from the lies that at some point the enemy has convinced us to believe about ourselves. Many times I talk to people, spend time with people who are telling me a truth. They're telling me something about themselves or about their story or about their journey as if it's like a fact that even in a few minutes of spending time with them is very clear. This is not a fact. It's just something they've now believed is true about them. Cain believed the lie that he was less loved than Abel. That, that he had put forth as much effort and his heart was the same and God recognized that it wasn't. But Cain doesn't understand this and won't engage with this. And Cain therefore doesn't receive God's encouragement and God's question of where are you and who told you? He doesn't hear God's offering. And so instead just continues to hide his face. Sometimes we are uh, sometimes where we are is a consequence of believing the words of that lesser voice. And I think it's really, really important that we understand that right now because what I don't want to do is move on before we bring a little bit of clarity to a part of this. Um, Cain believes a lie. And so his actions uh, result in him separating himself from God. Many of us in this room have parts of our shame story, including me, regarding choices I made and, and things I deal with that I know are different than the character and the person I want to be. And some of them are, are, are desperately dark. And in a room like this right now, as I sit in this, you're begging me for, to move on because you don't want to keep thinking about this thing that, that, that really has great hold in your life because it is so different than who you see yourself as. There's a lot of shame around that. We're going to talk about that for most of the rest of the talk. But it would, it would be really... Um, it would be very wrong of me not to address another group of people or another group of people that maybe have a, this other part as well because most a lot of us have both. There's another group of people that you feel shame not because of something that you did but because of something that someone did to you because the lesser voice was actually harm done to you. And then it, it put your life on a path, especially if you were young, 
put your life on a path that then caused you to act out and, and, and you know, replicate or, or retreat from different things that, that you probably wouldn't have, have experienced if you had not have had that thing happen in your life that you are not responsible for. And I, I think that's, a, or I should say, it's not your fault. That's a better way to say it, that, that it's not your fault. And this is really, really important that, that we understand this principle, the principle of uh, responsibility versus fault when it comes to people who have experienced trauma and so therefore they experience shame because of trauma that has happened due to other people's behavior. Let me say this as gently as I can on the screen. Although it is not your fault that this terrible thing happened to you, it still is your responsibility to do something about it. That, that, you, that you and I, and I have some of this stuff, don't get to go, well, because that happened to me, I get to go and behave and react and, and, and do these things because this thing happened to me that's not my fault. Now, when you have a church like ours uh, that focuses a lot on emotional health, we end up with an audience full, whether you know it or not, of therapists and psychologists. A lot of emotional health workers uh, go to Kesed, which means I get critiques every week, it feels like. Where they're like, whoa, 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 can I share with you what my PhD has taught me? And I'm like, sure, right? Because it's awesome. This particular quote right here, okay, uh, a psychologist in our, in our church wrote me after Thursday, and she goes, hey, can I add something to that? It's true, but can I add something to that? And she said this, yes, we all have a responsibility to decide that, to do something about it, but that decision is whether to transform it or transmit it. Yeah, that's not even mine. I know. I was like, ugh. That's a... She says, you can transform it into something beautiful in your life, this, this trauma that happened to you, this space, because you're responsible for that. Or you cannot be responsible and just continue the cycle of shame, transmitting it to everyone around you. And so I want to be thoughtful in this space to say, what happened to you is not your fault, but it doesn't change the responsibility that you and I have to still sit with our shame to recognize how it's impacted our lives and to decide to transform it, not transmit it, into something that can be beautiful for the kingdom. So I, I say that that's a hard corner to turn in a room like this or with folks watching online, but um, it's really, really important that some of us hear that about a part of our story and then the other stuff, you know when you made the decision, you know when you did it because you were being selfish or you were being unkind or you were... You were ruled by your own uh, story. Um, but I wanted to make sure we, we brought that differentiation. Now, Cain decides that he is going to transmit. He's going to take the, the shame from his parents. He's not going to transform. He's going to transmit. He doesn't respond to God's plea or God's ass. And he decides instead to go and uh, uh, transmit it to his brother. So it says, verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Undealt with shame will always result in the throwing of that shame's pain upon those around us. Be very clear, too. This alludes to this idea that, that Cain planned this, that he went out to his field where he's an expert, that he dug a hole where he's an expert, and that then he invited the person that he felt had more or that had more uh, whatever it was that Cain was transmitting to him over to this space, killed him, put him in the ground, buried him, and then went back to work. I don't know how many of you have done this sort of thing where you have actually planned thoughtfully to, to emotionally, maybe even physically harm someone else 
because of your own shame story, but most of the time you harm them inside something you find valuable. Cain was a farmer. Like, if, why not just go over and kill him in the sheep pen? Like, on his turf. Because that's not how shame works. Shame leverages what you do. This is why church, church leaders, and pastors go sideways so fast. Because they get on stage, and they're under the lights, and they're influential, and they speak words, and they're like, yeah. And then next thing you know, they're manipulation, 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 coercion, coercion, dysfunction. I don't, what are you talking about? How could I sin? I have lights and a microphone. And next thing you know... They're burying bodies all around them, usually beneath the pulpit, frankly. This is why I'm telling you, challenge everything I say. I'm just a guy trying to follow God, living out the gift he's given me. But it doesn't mean without a lot of self-awareness that my gift, just like your gift, by the way, can't be warped. Cain believed it. Cain let his shame leap out of him. And yet the Lord showed up again. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I don't know. And then he said this arrogant comment. Am I my brother's keeper? See, there's only one person on the planet at this time who's a keeper. And it's his brother, Abel, who's a keeper of sheep. And so Cain's like, oh, I'm sorry, God. Did you lose your favorite sheep? Am I my brother's keeper? But God don't play games. Just like he's not playing games with some of you stony heart folks. I was going to say fools instead of folks, but it would have been offensive, so I just said folks. But I was thinking fools the whole time. <laughs> it doesn't count if I admit I'm thinking it. That's... So God already knows the answer to the question. Cain refuses to answer like we all do when we're hiding stuff inside our gifts. And he chooses to stay hidden. He won't be honest about the voice he hears and where it has led him. Now, this is very important. I want you to notice that this time, instead of where are you, right? The question he asked Adam and Eve, he asked, where is your brother? This is how shame works in the cycle. It starts off between God and me, but left undealt, it all of a sudden happens to be spilling out between me and my neighbor. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. The appropriate response right now at this point in Cain's story should be guilt, by the way. And guilt is different than shame. Guilt is I made a mistake and I've done something wrong. Shame is I am a mistake. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is a focus on self. Critiques from psychologists. Shame inhibits us from doing the work of repentance and repair that guilt informs us to do to get back into alignment with God, values, and relationships. Mm. I added that, by the way. That's all in the notes. All this has been added to the notes on the app. Everything in my, on my notes, it's all on the app. You can go have every verse, every quote, all the stuff. She then adds this. Shame says, why bother? This is just who I am. This speaks to the cycle, and I will do it again anyways. Shame encourages passivity, whereas guilt, when responded to in a healthy way, encourages reparative action. That's what a PhD will get you right there. <laughs> that, that's the difference between shame and guilt. Some of us in this room, you feel appropriate guilt. Engage with it. Let it, let it break you open. Let it break that heart of stone, Scripture says, and replace it with a heart of flesh. But you will say, as I did, as mine was slowly replaced, but a heart of flesh is so hurtable. Yes. 
but it's also transformable, changeable, and allows other people to be engaged in your life. And guilt oftentimes will do that. But shame says there's no hope for you. You're a piece of garbage, and you should just lay down and let life roll you over. And shame continues to hurt. So Cain doesn't repent. He believes the shame. He never feels sorry for what he did. And he's never honest. He never confesses. He's never guilty, if you will. He just believes the shame and moves on. So guess what God does for Cain? The same thing he does for us. He reaches toward him and defines the consequences of living a life like that. And the Lord said, what have you done? Then he says these words, listen really carefully. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Do you remember earlier what I said that shame kind of wraps itself inside your story, inside your gift? For pastors, it wraps themselves inside their pulpit. For other people, it wraps themselves inside money. People who are about money are like, I just want to provide for my family. I just want to help people. Next thing you know, they're powerful and they're insulated and they're uncriticable. And they're like these mini rich gods that just deem other people's problems. Mm. This is how it works. And this is exactly what's happening here. The voice of your brother's blood is crying from the ground. God said, this thing that was your identity, that you're a farmer, that you create life from this earth, now your brother's blood will always be represented in that work and in your identity. Not because God's pouring that into his life, because that's the choice shame made with Cain when he buried his brother in the field of corn behind his house. Like that's what happens. We bury it inside of our stories and then try and use our stories to overcome it. It's profound and it's sad and it's all of us. And it's a great reminder of why we're supposed to engage it in the first place. So then God defines for him the consequence of living a life like that. He says, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Quick uh, just mention of this word wanderer. This is a common consequence of shame. Shame makes you feel like you don't belong anywhere and is, is probably one of the most common uh, after effects of a life built on shame is that you just never feel like you fit in. And it's not because the world's against you, it's because you're against you and you're constantly hearing a voice that tells you you're not good enough to be here. And so you wander. And then shame does what it's best at, which is kick you right in the face even when you're already laying on the ground in an emotional fetal position. Cain responds. Listen to his response. Listen to what shame has convinced him God said. Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Suddenly Cain can talk. Isn't that profound? He has hardly talked at all. He's just been a man of action. Then God's like, here's what you've done to yourself. And he's like, whoa, suddenly my, my punishment is more than I can bear. Well, it is difficult, Cain, God says. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. Yep, the ground's going to remind you of this thing. And then Cain interrupts. And from your face I shall be hidden. What? God never said that. God never said anything about hiding his face from Cain. Then he goes on. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Nope, I never said that either. And whoever finds me will kill me. There's a lot of drama going on here right now. This is like the only time I can see in scripture where God's surprised. All it says is, then the Lord said to him, not so. 
This is profound to me. He's like, I said the ground stuff because you buried your bro back in the corn. Right? You did this, all this stuff. And then he's like, I won't survive. This curse you've laid upon my life. And God's like, well, first off, you did this. I didn't. And second, half the stuff is just stuff you're making up. This is what shame does. It says, you don't belong in church. You don't belong in that marriage. You don't belong in the job. Frankly, you don't belong on earth. And God's like, whoa, whoa. He's like, no, there is a body emotionally, spiritually, in all of our lives probably buried somewhere. And we should probably face that and deal with that. And shame says, he knows about the body. You should burn the house down and kill yourself. And God's like, wait a minute. This is what shame does. Is it takes the smallest handhold and turns it into a chokehold to keep you face down and blind from all that God wants to bring into your life. The Lord goes on, not so. If anyone kills Cain, he even gives him like a kind of a protection. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now I told you God never told Cain half that stuff. Cain adds all that stuff himself. His shame tells him that he needs to hide himself from God. This is solely based on who his shame cycle taught him God was and the lesser voice he continued to hear. Our shame is constantly reminding us that our identity isn't enough. And the goal of that shame and proclaiming that to you is to that it gets passed on to the next generation even worse. That's the goal. That's the end game of shame. It's not just to destroy you. It's to get a deeper hold in your, in your lineage, in your family. Matter of fact, just three generations later, in the same chapter, Saint, uh, Cain has like a great, great grandson. It says in Genesis 4, 23, 24, his name was Lamech. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. And then he describes the situation. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And then he says, basically, this is what our family does. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77fold. He says, this is how we operate. This thing that God said that, that is a consequence now has become part of our genetics. This is what we all do. I get this more with men than women, but this is what we all do when I'm like, hey, why did you do that to this situation? And, and they were like, that's just what we do. You cross us here, this is how we operate. My dad one time, my grandpa one time, my great grandma told me one time. Anybody have that great grandma? I got one of those great grandmas back in California. Mm. I have an actual story where an uncle told me that he got into a fight with a man and his actual quote to me when I was 10 was, you know what we did? We went out into the woods and we had ourselves a little gunplay. What? Are we in a Western? What's happening right now? You had some gunplay? I'm 10. I was like, is that, that's what we do? That's how we do. And he's like, well, you know, you gotta, you gotta respect your family. You gotta, you gotta honor the boundaries. This is what we do and it becomes okay. This is what Lamech did. He's like, hey, you know, my great, great granddad, he dealt with that problem. Now I'm gonna deal with it even more. This goes on and on and on and on in our stories until finally, finally somebody decided to put a stop to it. And that somebody is the person we started this talk with, and that's Jesus. The Son of Man is born to break the cycle of shame. Jesus is alluding to this very story with Lamech. 
when Peter gets frustrated with somebody and they're walking along and then Peter comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And then he cites the vengeance of God as many as seven times. Then Jesus looks at him, knowing we would all read this passage right now, and says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times, seven times. He walks over and he steps on the curse and the shame of Lamech, and he says, that cycle's broken. We're not doing that anymore. We're not playing that game anymore. It goes on. The writer of Hebrews reminds us specifically of Jesus breaking this shame cycle when describing who Jesus was meant to be. Listen carefully. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, new relationship, new way, new cycle, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mm. He says, there'll be new blood poured into the ground. There'll be new blood spread upon the cross. There'll be a new word so that people no longer have to worry about the bodies in their lives that they don't know what to do with. Jesus will deal with that. Jesus will overcome that. Jesus will redeem that. Jesus will move in that. And the cycle of shame in humanity when people engage with Jesus will be broken. Consider Jesus' very first message. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word for repent in Greek is metanoeo. The meta piece means beyond or over. And the noeo means thinking. Jesus is teaching, think from above and it will change your patterns and life. Change your thinking because my kingdom is here and I came to break the cycle. You don't have to do this anymore. There is a new father you can say, you know, you know why I love you, coworker who's just ridiculous and should be fired a long time ago? You know why I love you, uh, wife who just doesn't really want to do the emotional health work or husband who just pretends like everything's fine because we've been married longer than your dysfunctional parents? Do you know why I love you? I love you because Jesus loved me and that I can show grace and mercy and break a cycle in our story. And you won't know any other reason than Jesus. It's not because I'm better. It's not because I'm more disciplined. It's not because I'm more educated. It's because I have Jesus and he says, I don't have to live in that cycle anymore. And we can have a new marriage and a new family and a new church, and actually have honesty and integrity and character and be filled with people who have tons of different worldviews than you, and yet we can still have a conversation and go, I don't agree with any of that. Should we go get some pizza and be friends? Wouldn't that be profound? But we can't do that very often because my shame says, you can't be friends with that guy. He has a sin issue. Different than mine. (laughs) I love being friends with people with my same sin issue. Right? I love it. But, but people with different sin issues, ones I don't understand, ones I'm really good at not dealing with, ugh, ick. Shame is off the table when Jesus is on the cross. And it's our job to remember that over and over and over, to change our hearts of stone, to feel the guilt, to let the transformation take hold, to recognize that the story of old is rewritten by the story of new, a better word, poured into the ground, all my consequences. God already knows, by the way, where I am. I'm the only one who needs to figure it out. And I need to recognize he's the only voice I should be listening to. This is the message of the new and better word, the one who forever breaks the cycle of shame. Now you just have to decide to actually do something about it. Because you can just listen to this sermon and critique it, which I hope you do. I'm sure there's many different things about it that... uh, could be different or better 
But the truth of it is, that's not what this is about, and you know it. It has nothing to do with me or the person that you've been trying to push this sermon on. You know who I should share this with? Don't share this with anybody. Don't share it with a soul. You share it with you, bro. (laughs) Yeah, you share it with the stuff in you that you've been actually, like, lifting up as valuable. Like, Like, how about this? Stop branding your life. Just be a human being that's functioning the best they can, love God, feel the critique, recognize some of the failures, and ask him to do something more with you, not just for you, but for the people around you. And watch what happens when you still leave that house, see shame up around the bend, know you're going to get in a fist fight later tonight, and just decide to take off your jacket and be like, you know what, all right. Somebody's going to bleed tonight, and it might be me, it might be Shane, but at the end of the day, Jesus is going to be there in the morning and go, all right, go fight. Let's go again. This is what it is. Somebody needs to just say it. This entire calling is nothing but smiling back through bloodied teeth and proclaiming Jesus is enough. And if that's too hard for you, and you just want to keep the cycle of shame then listen, I don't have a ton of parking spots here and I need them for people who are willing to actually fist fight for God. I just don't have enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) It's the outfit, I'm telling you, it's the outfit. I gotta be careful what I wear up here. I just need to sign some people up. It's, it's beautiful and it's wonderful, but, but why, why waste time and waste our lives? If this is a game to you, then, then go play it. But for those of us who, who want to kill that thing, for those of us who refuse to pass it on to our kids, then this is where I think God's going to make that happen. And I am, I am willing, if you are, to see where it goes. Amen? I'm going to have the worship team come out because the last thing I want to do is be the last voice you hear. My goal is that you hear something from God in the space that you've created, that God has created, and that it's, it's specific to you in this week. So I'm going to have you bow your head. We're going to take a moment and just hold, hold the space we're in. We're going to be honest that, that God, uh, God, there's a lot of emptiness in the room right now as we, as we recognize that uh, we filled it with things of our own creating, whether voices, whether uh, shame, Some of it's been filled by choices other people made that, God, we're now trying to empty out. Either way, Lord, my hope is that there would be a sense of filling in this room right now. That we would take the next few minutes and there would be a sense of of you being willing to see us, to hold us, to ask us, where where are we? Because you don't see us as stuck. You don't see us even as lost. You know where we are and you are there in that space waiting to hold us, waiting to forgive us when we repent, waiting to restore us. You recognize, Lord, there's so many voices we're listening to and so you ask again, like you have generation after generation after generation who told you that you were anything but beloved and beautiful and whole and designed. 
by the one who made all of the beautiful things in this world and yet none compare to each and every child of God that's in this room right now or listening online. And so Lord, may you lift our faces to look into your eyes, to see what you see, to hold what you hold. May we not pretend that this is gonna be easy from here out, but instead, Lord, may we know that you go with us every step, every trip, every blow, every fatigue, every failure, you go with us and you restore and you redeem time and time again. And there is nothing but hope in our future in spite of the strife and the struggle to break the cycle that has existed for generations in our stories. And so God, I pray there would be a filling in that empty space that you, that you, God, would be what moves us forward as we bring our worship, our reflection, and our love to you. Amen.
Spirit to move in our hearts, to move in our minds, and move in our souls here this morning. Here we go, let's sing it. Oh, you are moving in this room right now. God, I pray that we would sit here, that we would be awakened, that you would reveal to us in our hearts and our minds who we are. God, that you would wipe away and take away all the lies that have been placed in our and over our lives, God. I feel like there's some people in this room and actually specifically online if you're in your living room or you're driving in your car right now and you don't think that the presence of God is with you in this moment, He is very close to you right now. And I believe that there's people here that are feeling like their lives and their hearts and their minds are already shattered on the ground in pieces. That you're battling with the lie that it's all too messy and too broken 
that your focus is down on the ground. That you're just staring at the mess and not believing that God can actually pick them all up and make something beautiful out of your brokenness. So if that's you in this room or online, I wanna lift you up in prayer right now, Father God. For those people that feel like they are too broken, God, would you lift their heads to lock eyes with you, to focus on you and who you say they are. And then that mess and those broken pieces all over the floor is exactly where God wants you so that he can make you whole again. So God, I pray for every person in this room that anyone that feels like that will just look up. God, we know that you have everyone. You have our hearts, you have our minds. So Father, I pray that we would begin to believe the truth that you have said about us and to leave behind the lies, God. We love you, we trust you, we hear you. We ask for all of this in Jesus' mighty, powerful, loving name. Amen, 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 guys. Thank you so much for coming this morning. We love having you. Thank you for worshiping with us. We hope that you guys have an amazing day and an awesome week. And we will be excited to see you guys next week, okay?